Well, welcome to New Life Christian Center, and uh, we're glad that you're here. We're in the last chapter and the last message of this series through First and Second Peter. We're in Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you feel like you would like to catch up on these uh, sermon series and kind of catch uh, the bigger picture and and each installment, you can jump on uh, our website, nlccaddy.com, or you can jump on Apple Podcast and pick it up there. We'd love for you to do that. Uh, today, we're going to dive into Peter's very last words for the church in Asia Minor. The last things that he was thinking about as he wrote to these churches, and what we know as modern-day Turkey really is the geographical location, but... In that day, it was called Asia Minor, and there was churches spread all over that region, churches that the apostles had started, churches that the apostles had, had mentored and trained up uh, as they were out in these regions and, and evangelizing the people and then making, uh, discipling them, making elders, uh, elders then coming in and, and taking up uh, where the apostles would leave off and head to another city Elders would pick up and continue to teach and, and preach the word and disciple the people. These are really Peter's last words in that regard. And uh, Peter's conclusion is really a strong word. It's a strong word for the church in that day, and I think it's still a strong word for the church today. And I don't make any apology, really, for the, uh, the, the, the depth and the strength by which we've been going through these chapters and going through this series. I don't make any apology at all, because I think the church needs a strong word. It needs a good, strong wake-up message. We have to know what the word says. We have to know how to discern the times that we live in, and we have to be alert. As Peter says, we have to be sober and vigilant. You, are not, you do not get to that spot by sitting back kicking back in the easy chair in your Christianity, nor do I, and just saying, ah, it's all good, God's got it all under control, we'll just sit here and kind of watch it all play out. That's not the view that Peter has for the church, it's not the, Paul, the, the view that uh, Paul or any of the other apostles have, that's not God's view for the church as well, is that we just kind of kick back and sit around, kind of, you know, muse along in kind of this dreamy atmosphere waiting for the second coming of Christ uh, and would just kind of watch it like we're watching a TV show. That's not it at all. No, there's, there's things that we have to tend to. And the strength of Peter's message, I think, is uh, much needed today. The strength of God's message through Peter is much needed for the church today. As we've been going through the second epistle, we've really addressed two so far. We've addressed two myths that we're in that culture today. They're still in our culture today as well. By the way, that myth number one is that the apostles made up these stories of Jesus, that they're just myths, that they're just fairy tales, they're just legends. Uh, they were doing it for a variety of reasons to, to you know, try to somehow propagate this idea of Jesus in the culture, kind of keep his, his uh, brand alive, as it were. Maybe that's a modern-day look at it, but uh, Peter addressed those two that issue really with two different perspectives. That's in Second Peter chapter one, sixteen through twenty-one, where he talks about his personal eyewitness testimony and the old, old Testament prophetic passages that are confirmed 
by Jesus. Myth number two that we looked at last week is that God won't punish the wicked or deliver the righteous. That was the myth that was in that culture then, and it's still alive today. That there won't be any reckoning for sin, or there won't be any reward for, for uh, righteousness. That, that none of that is really real. That when you die, you just die. And it's all over with. And you lived your time just like a, the, the grass as it comes up green in the spring and turns brown in late summer. And by the time winter comes, it's all down and covered with snow and that's it. That's what a lot of people's view is for humanity. It just comes and goes and that's it. And that there's no, uh, there's no reckoning as it were. Peter answers with three Old Testament examples of judgment of sin and deliverance for the faithful. He answers it really with tying the idea of the wicked with 33 character qualities out of chapter 2. 33 character qualities, how you can know what a false teacher looks like. 33 character traits with two with two descriptions of a false message. So Peter really emphasized, we looked at that last week, he really emphasized, and I wouldn't say overemphasized, he just wanted to make sure that we know who we're looking at, who we're hearing from, who's saying what, and you can tell more about a person's message by their character than by their words. That's chapter 2. Today we're going to look at Peter's response as we close out this book and this series into myth number three. Myth number three is kind of an interesting one because it's, uh, it's challenging from the perspective that we get just a window of time to experience this life. We get just a window of time. And so th- this myth can be kind of tricky uh, in this way. And here, I'll just give you the myth. That generations come and go, and generations have, have came and went, and where's Jesus at? Where's the return that was talked about? And Peter dives straight into that and says, whoa, whoa, hold on. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we have a response to be able to uh, understand that. We have a responsibility to, to be able to teach that and to know what God's Word says and uh, to come against this idea that generations come and go and where's Jesus' return. The problem with this myth in our culture, and I think it was probably true then, although none of us were there, to really witness it, maybe except for David, he might have been there. But uh, the problem with this myth is, is that when the idea that generations just come and go, Jesus' return hasn't happened, what it does is it infuses apathy into the church. That's the problem with this myth, is that we get really apathetical about the things of God, because, hey, you know, it's just been a long time, 2,000 years, just seems like forever. You know, when's it going to change? So we get apathetical. When you get apathetical in your faith, that means that you're kicked back. You become lazy about the things you should be diligent about. I become kind of uh, withdrawn, so to speak, or you might become kind of withdrawn about the things that are important. We're not so apt to, to, to lean into our culture with God's Word. We're rather, we're, we're kind of passive. We're kind of held back. Maybe we're kind of decide, hey, I need to, you know, stay in my bunker because the world around me is really wicked and horrible and I just need to, you know, isolate myself. We can have those types of tendencies uh, if we are given to this myth at all. We'll have these types of tendencies. 
Let's dive right into the last chapter. Chapter 3, 2 Peter. Peter writes this. He says, Beloved, now I write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter's goal here really for the church is just to stay focused on the Word of God. Stay focused on the Word of God. Apathy will pull you away from that focus if you're given to this myth. Peter's saying stay focused on the Word of God. That's his goal. That's his purpose. So he wants to stir up this idea of pure minds. He wants our pure minds stirred up. And Peter continues to push the reminder button on this essential truth. This idea of a pure mind, if you want some extra passages that kind of give you an idea of what a pure mind looks like, it's a transformed mind, Romans 12.2. One of my favorite verses for later tonight. Romans 12.2 is a pure mind. Paul's teaching about being transformed. A pure mind is a transformed mind in Christ. It's a Christ-like mind, Philippians 2.5 and 1 Corinthians 2.16. That's what a pure mind looks like. It's a Christ-like mind. It's a mind that meditates on good things. Philippians 4.8. It's a great passage. You should read it. mind that meditates on good things. And it's a mind that has peace. It's a peaceful mind. A peaceful mind. You see that really in Isaiah 26.3. And as Peter shared in 1 Peter, his first letter, 1 Peter 1.3, it's a sober and an alert mind. A sober and an alert mind can have peace because that mind understands and discerns what's going on around them, including the fact that God has everything under control. God has everything under control. That nothing is going to happen to you when you're in Christ. That should be peaceful. Despite your circumstances. Despite the the hurricane of life that's happening around you and around me at times, we can have peace when our mind's focused on Christ. So Peter's talking about this idea, pure mind. With this pure mind idea, Peter focuses them on two things, the Old Testament writers and the New Testament apostles' message. The Old Testament writers and the New Testament apostles' message where he says, be mindful of these words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Uh, Peter's making a huge authoritative declaration right here. So he doesn't want it to be any mistake at all of what's going on. And one of my questions for Peter will be, while you were writing these letters, or for Paul, while you were writing these letters, did you know... Were you aware of, I think this indicates that Peter was, but I want to know for sure, were they aware that they were writing God's words? Were they aware, because of their office of being an apostle, were they aware at the time that they were writing Holy Scripture? Were they aware of that? I think that this kind of, to me, this indicates that Peter is aware of that in the sense that he's putting the words of the apostles on the same level as the Old Testament writers. See, in these days, in that first century, they knew that the Old Testament was God's word. 
unequivocally that the Old Testament was God's Word. It wasn't just a, you know, a bunch of ancient fables or myths. They knew that those were the words of God that were written down by His leaders, by His men. Were they aware, and I think they were, that these words that they were writing were on that same plane? I believe they do, and I think that Peter's making this declaration here. And notice it doesn't just say apostle. It doesn't say the apostle of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Peter talking about himself. It doesn't say that. There are some people that would, that would put Peter on such a high plane to say that he's really the apostle or he's the, the leader of the church, singular. That's not what the Bible indicates. The Bible is very clear. It says apostles. So he puts himself in that mix, along with Paul, along with the rest, as they lay out God's word. And he's saying that he's one of several that Jesus is called to be. Perhaps he's the first amongst the disciples. You might make that case. But he's not the only apostle. He goes on to say, knowing this, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Here's our myth in question form. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It's an interesting way to start it out. He dives right into the myth. He says, hey, people are going to ask you this question. Hey, where is God at in this thing? And people are going to say things and in the midst of hurricanes and floods and massive devastation. Where's God at? And they'll say it in a mocking voice because they don't believe that He's ever coming. Largely because they don't believe that He ever existed. They're not saying it so that you will give them a, a reply. They're saying it to, to uh, negate the essence of your faith. They're saying it to negate the, the person and work of Jesus Christ and wipe that off the conversational map, as it were, and basically cancel you out. You want to talk about a cancel culture? Forget about all the social media stuff. There's a cancel culture that's been going on since the first century. Where's Jesus at? You guys be saying that he's coming. Where's he at? And Peter calls them scoffers. That's a huge word. That's a big indictment. If you look up the idea of scoffers, it's those that are deniers, mockers, belittlers, hecklers, detractors, those that jeer at and criticize and disparage and torment, and decry, and minimize, and there's this word in the dictionary too, they censure, they censure those that would believe in Christ. That's what Peter, that's who Peter's talking about. So the battleground is like right now in our culture. It is full throttle. If you guys have been watching the news at all, you know about House Resolution 5 that passed our, our house, that's has the potential anyway of totally changing the dynamics for anybody of faith. You want to talk about censure? You want to talk about scoffers? That's what's going on in our culture today. In the first century, it was all driven out of Roman rule to try to minimize and marginalize the Christians of that day. To try to suppress this this 
upswell of belief in Christ, this new faith, this new group. So Rome was trying to squish them down, trying to push them down, trying to minimize and marginalize them out of existence, trying to pressurize every believer with the thought of, you know, hey, if you, if you really want to believe that way, you know, that's okay, but it might be really hard for you to buy things in the marketplace. Just saying. It might be really hard for you to, you know, find a place to live, you know, if you're going to be a Christian. It might be really hard for you to, you know, to be influential in the culture if you're a Christ follower. Just saying. You might want to think about that. It's a mafia mentality on how to deal with people that you disagree with. That mentality has not changed. It's alive today in our culture, and it's growing, and it's going to get bigger, and it's not going to quit pushing against believers. So we better pull up our pants, we better get our big boy britches on, and learn to deal with it in this culture today. Otherwise, we're in danger of just fading off and running down the river. That's where we're at. So Peter calls them scoffers. Peter calls those people scoffers. Let's move on. I am encouraged with this idea, though, as I've been kind of uh, emphatic myself. Peter's emphatic that they will be here, that they are here, right? That they're going to come. We live in a world like Peter's. Uh, the great news and the thing that I kind of get excited about is that in God's economy, there's only one vote that counts, <laughs> right? God's economy is not a, uh, it's a theocracy. His vote's the one that counts. It's the only one that counts. It's good to be on that side of the ledger. The Bible says this about scoffers in other places. And the Bible has a lot to say about scoffers if you do a word study on it. God deniers are foolish, Psalm 14, 1 says. They're foolish. Psalm 1, 1 starts right off and says, Blessed are those that avoid scoffers, that avoids them. Judgment's waiting for scoffers, Proverbs 19, 28 says. The scoffers are the type of people, they're, they're, they have the type of characteristic, the type of quality about them, that do this according to uh, Proverbs 29.8. They, they're the type of people that set a city on fire. Haven't we been watching that for the last year? Isn't that like Scripture just coming to life in our culture? That's the type of people scoffers are. Scoffers hate Jesus and His people. John 15.8, Jesus is saying that. And Jude gives us a great look into the little tiny book of Jude, Jude 1.18 says, says, <clears throat> says that scoffers, they live by the flesh and not by the Spirit. They live by the flesh, not by the Spirit. Scoffers have two issues, two problems with God. They have a moral problem and they have an intellectual problem. I'll start kind of in a little bit of reverse order. They have an intellectual problem with God. They deny His existence. They deny his, his power. They deny His involvement with mankind. Look at 
the words of Peter again. Where is the promise of his coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deny what God's up to, and they have a moral problem. Look there tightly at verse 3, where Peter says they walk according to their own lusts. Same concept as what Jude writes about in Jude 1.18, where they live by the flesh and not by the Spirit. According to Peter, this is the attitude and the message of scoffers. The attitude and the message of scoffers as is consistent with who he wrote about in chapter 2, the wicked, the ungodly, the unrighteous. They have the same attitude and message issues. Meanwhile, for us, we should not grow weary. There's a great piece in here I think that we should look at, maybe with a different view, is that we should not grow weary waiting for Jesus' coming. He has a purpose in His patience, and that should propel us to continue on, not to sit silent, not to sit in the back row of life and the back row of culture. It should propel us. His patience and His purposes should propel us forward as we're waiting for a second coming. But waiting doesn't mean that we sit on our hands. Let's go on. Peter's going on to answer their question. Verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, verse 5 says, By the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth stood out of the waters, out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition on ungodly men. There's a couple of dangers here that, uh, that Peter's bringing out. First thing is, is that scoffers willingly, verse 5, they willingly forget. They will, what do they willingly forget? They willingly forget the, the, the lessons and the foundation that's given to us in Genesis. That's what he's talking about. They're choosing, and, and, and we know many people around us that choose, that choose a different view for creation. Whatever leads them to those uh, conclusions, that's probably wide, probably really varied. But there's a lot of people that choose to go that way. And I'm here to tell you, parents especially, if you don't teach and train your kids, by the time they hit about 17 and 18 and on into their early 20s, they're going to be propelled into a culture that is, has so much impact on them to choose willingly to forget that will cause our kids to do exactly what Peter is saying about scoffers. And there's kids by the droves. The statistics are wild about young people that leave the church, leave the faith in their early 20s. It's really the saddest statistic, I think, that's out there. And the onus is on us. The onus is on us fathers, us parents. The weight of that responsibility is on us. We have to embrace that. And if we're not doing that job, or if we're not doing it as well as we should be doing it, our first step is to come before the Lord in repentance, seek His forgiveness, and then boldly rise up in His power, in His strength, and in His ways, and in His word, and do simply what God has commanded us to do, 
as husbands and fathers and parents. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's right. I'm not saying that it's a simple task, but I will promise you this, that if you look across the room, I'll guarantee you I could walk up to anybody and say, hey, I need help with something that you're really good at. Will you help me? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll take a few minutes. Well, let's talk about it. So at least wise across this half circle, there's some help out there. How many of us know strong Christian men and women that don't go to this church that you're in a good relationship with, that you're friends with? Raise your hands up high. Like almost every hand's going up. I bet you you could say the same thing about those people. Hey, hey, I, I, I need some help. I need some perspective. I need some counsel. Can I sit and talk to you? And they would embrace that. Of course they would embrace that. And we should be embracing it for one another. But the onus is on us to come against this idea, at least wise for our own kids, but spread that out to the other kids that were influential in their lives. You show up here on a Monday or Wednesday night, you're going to see a wide array of kids and possibilities for you to be influential in people's lives. Right? We're, we're busting at the seams on Monday night. We have twice as many junior high and high school kids here on a Monday night than we're used to in the last seven, eight years of doing a while here. Twice as many. We're stacked wall to wall. We're trying to figure out how to, how, can we do it better? Can we do it different? Can we shuffle things around? We, we're running out of space. Josh, let's build some bigger building, right? We need more room. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to speak into these kids' lives and point them in the right direction and so that they will continue to put God's Word in their hearts, in their minds, live it out, and they won't be the statistic that Peter's talking about when it comes to scoffers when they get into their 20s and on. That they won't be a part of that crowd that just walks away from God and then has to in their, you know, after 10, 15, 20, 30 years of, of baggage and wrecked life have to then come back to the Lord after all of this trouble. God's just as interested in keeping people out of the hospital as he is in dealing with the people that come to his spiritual hospital in need of help. We can't lose that from our sight as a church. So we have a responsibility. It starts with us. When I say it starts with us, I'm saying men, parents, church, leadership. Be influential in the places that you can be influential. Massive danger... Massive danger that scoffers willingly forget the lessons. The foundation for the whole Bible is in those first, is in the first book, really, the book of Genesis. Like in chapter 2, Peter reminds us that God deals with the wickedness. God deals with wickedness. And scoffers, a word on scoffers, scoffers presume that the mercy and the long-suffering of God means that there won't be a judgment. That's their error. Their error is that they're presumptuous that God's not really going to do anything because He doesn't seem like He has. It's a presumption. But it's not true to the Word of God. They say things like this, hey, we, we haven't experienced any outpouring of judgment, so there not, must not be any coming. That's kind of their message. That's their MO. That's their understanding. 
And you think about the days of Noah. They went on and lived life in ungodliness and wickedness, scoffing and mocking Noah for building this massive ark, this massive you know, structure that nobody even knew what it was because they never had any, <laughs> never had a flood before. You know, the worst place to be is in a flood with no boat. So they learned that the hard way. But they mocked and scoffed him, a man of righteousness, for doing what he was told to do by taking the initiative, doing what God had said, stay at it, stay at it, keep building, keep pounding. It's not going to be anything coming, they said. Well, that didn't work out too good for them. Danger number two. Scoffers let their limited experience dictate their understanding of who God is. There's a little application here, continued danger for us. And I put it this way, when our experiences replace the Word of God to become the primary source of understanding and knowledge, we miss out on the fullness of God. And we are prone to misunderstand God's Word, God's will, and we're tempted to live by sight rather than faith. That's how it plays out in life. That's the reality of, uh, of where it's at. And whether that's you, whether that's me, whether that's you know, other people that may be in that scoffer category, the reality is, is that when our experiences replace God's Word, when what, when what I go through and my interpretation, my understanding of that replaces God's view of the matter. That's what I'm getting at. When what I think is right or wrong or what I think is happening here replaces God's Word and becomes the primary source of understanding and knowledge, then I'm going to miss out on the fullness of God. Sometimes that fullness is tough, tough, tough lesson. But God knows that I need that, and He knows that you need that tough lesson. That's where it's at. That's why, that's why uh, trials and tribulations and difficult times are hard to bear, but we have to stay focused. We have to stay focused on the reality that God has a good plan. And in that good plan, even though it's a tough season for me or potentially for you, that there's a great lesson in it. That God is doing something to me and, and my character. He's transforming me to be more like Him through that difficult thing. That's the fullness of God that we're getting at. And we're prone to misunderstand God's Word. So we'll have a slanted view of God's Word. We'll have a slanted view of God's will. And we're tempted to live by sight rather than faith. Living by, by sight rather than faith is the essence of a scoffer's view. That's what Peter's getting at. They're going to live by sight. Well, I, I haven't seen any judgment. Where's Jesus? At? I, haven't, I haven't seen Jesus come. I haven't seen any judgment. It must not going to be any. And so they start scoffing at God and the things of God. We don't base our faith on our personal experience. We base it upon God's truth. God's truth that's revealed to us in the Bible, yet our experiences, and I don't want to minimize our experiences, I want to put them in context. Our experience of God's work in our life is an important 
and persuasive additional support for our faith and the faith of others. So I don't want to minimize our experience, but our experiences must be filtered through God's Word, not God's Word faith filtered through our experiences. That's what I'm driving at. And scoffers, scoffers have it backwards. They're taking their experience and trying to, trying to figure out how to answer this question of where's Jesus. Right? Hey, we only get so many years. We only get so many days on this planet. It's been a couple thousand years since Christ was here. A scoffer's attitude would say, hey, you know, apparently he's not coming. Must have forgot about us. Moved on to some other planet. Now we base, we base our faith on the truth of God's word and understand our experiences through that word. A classic example of getting this idea backwards really is out of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah's failure to be patient and wait for a child. Abraham and Sarah resorted to their, what? Their experience. God had told them what he was going to do, that he was going to give them a child. But they're sitting there looking at the clock saying, oh, we're really, really, really old. Our experience is, is that nobody around us has had a baby. People that are our age. People that we play cribbage with and shuffleboard. Right? No, n- none of those people have had a baby. They're resorting in their lack of faith they resort to seeing it through the flesh. And it was a catastrophic error to, to, even to today. The conflict that they created by stepping out of faith and into flesh is a conflict that still is uh, alive and well on this planet. The conflict between Arabs and everybody else. Not just Arabs and Jews. They really don't like anybody. I shouldn't say that about every single Arab, but those that are hardcore, uh, there's been this tension and conflict between the Muslim and Jewish and Christian faith for ever since this point, right? Peter goes on to say, look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. In the verse that's in the bulletin this morning, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's view. Peter answers the scoffer's question with God's view. Peter's explaining that uh, we see things from... We see time from a certain angle, but God's outside of time and space, and His patience looks like inaction to some people. God's patience looks like He doesn't care to some people. God's patience looks like He's not concerned. God's patience looks like He's taking a vacation for a couple thousand years, and in His view, it's totally different. No, His patience is working its way out through Opportunities, Peter says. Opportunities for people to repent and to turn back to Jesus. And at some point, at some point that all comes to a screeching halt. 
where everything's going to change. At some point, one day, it'll look different. We're kind of in this time that Paul calls in Romans 11, chapter 11, towards the end of chapter 11 and verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We just studied through this just a few weeks ago. But Paul kind of categorizes it, saying, hey, we're in a time and a period in world history where from God's perspective, he's waiting until the fullness of the Gentiles. In other words, all those who would, who would turn in repentance and trust Christ as their Savior, all those that would see God calling them to himself, all those that would, would bow the knee, we don't have a number, we don't have a time stamp, we don't have a date, we just know that we're in that that timeline. And, and I've, I've seen it put this way. It's like there's a, there's a timeline of mankind, a, a prophetic timeline, and all of a sudden we get to kind of this point and we kind of go parallel. Not that we're going a different direction. It's just that God has broadened out this window, this opportunity for mankind, and we're in that broadened time period 2,021 years later. How much further there will be, we don't know. How, how quick it could end, we don't know. But at some point, it's going to change. And Peter dives right into that in verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in, <clears throat> in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteous dwells. E. That's going to be a day. I don't think that's metaphorical in any way. Some people think it's kind of a metaphorical look that, you know, Peter's just kind of using flowery language to, to describe what's going to happen, and, you know, and so he wants to get kind of dramatic in it. I don't think so at all. I read that passage very literally. And there won't be time for, a, you know, roasting marshmallows over an open flame. Things are going to be vaporized. That's the common you know, word for today. It's going to be vaporized. Peter's really joining a host of other biblical authors, Joel, Malachi, Amos, Isaiah, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all four gospel writers, the Apostle Paul and Jude. He's kind of joining this huge crowd of authors that talk about, in some capacity... And in, in, in different aspects, all about that same day. That's a huge list of writers. There's tremendous uh, consistency, uh, 100% consistency amongst the biblical writers on how this day plays out. They all talk about the day of the Lord, what that day of the Lord will look like. A couple of things there. It's going to come unexpectedly. It's going to come unexpectedly. This is why I say there's no reason to sit back in the 
easy chair of life in our faith, kicked back, watching the big screen, just waiting for the rapture, waiting for God to show up, you know, not too involved, just going to be a consumer in this thing. I just, I just, give me the remote, give me the remote on what God's, you know, prophetic timetable is. I'll watch the channel I want to watch. We're not supposed to have that attitude at all. In fact, I don't think the pages of the Bible cover to cover give any example or any look at all to any God follower just being a consumer of the good things of God, and that's it. Like it's a pick and choose, like it's, you're at the buffet, you know, so I, I want these spiritual gifts, and I want these blessings, and the chocolate fountain, you know, I want that chocolate fountain. <whistles> you guys ever sat over the chocolate fountain? <whistles> right? We just want all the good things that God has to offer. We want all the blessings, all the upside, really without the accountability of the relationship, really without the, the, the pains that come with spiritual growth. And there are growth pains, just like there's physical growth pains as we get bigger, as we age, as we mature, as we get older. There's pains that go with every season. We, 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 re, we, really, we really don't want that part. No, there's purpose in those parts. There's purpose in it. And to be just a consumer in our Christian faith means that we're really missing out on a ton. No, we need to be invested into our relationship with God. It's not what saves us, but God wants a relationship that is interactive with His people. If he wanted it differently, we would be robotic. He could uh, receive the robotic worship of the masses, the drone effect. He wants the passionate worship of people that respond to him and his goodness and his good plan. There's going to be a loud noise, super hot. Big fire. Peter ties the day of the Lord to our character with the question of verse 12, where he says, What manner of persons ought you to be? He's saying, Hey, these things are going to happen. This is going to happen. It's going to happen on God's timetable. It's going to happen in God's way. It's going to come when nobody really expects it. And, and, and if you're a little bit like me, you're thinking, okay, well, if nobody is, I'm starting to wonder, is anybody really re expecting God's return? Because if nobody's expecting it, then maybe it's going to be there, right? You, play, you try to play that little reverse psychology thing with God and, and what he has going on. It doesn't work. Our job is to be faithful to the calling and the ministry and the purposes that God has for us. But what manner of persons ought we to be is Peter's question. See, this day, these events, this letter that he's written to us, the look into the three myths, the look into the false teaching, the, the false uh, prophets that he talked about in the last chapter, how that all plays out, how that can be influential or not be influential, depending upon where we're getting our information, how we're vetting it, whether we're being you know, Berean in our own personal lives and in our own families and our marriages and in the church about teaching that's out there. 
All of those things come into play into this question, what manner of person ought you to be? It's a great question. It's one that we should all be thinking about and talking about. What manner of persons ought we to be in 2021? What manner of person ought we to be, what manner of Christ follower ought we to be in the culture that we live in? What manner of person should we be knowing that God could come right now or he could give another couple thousand years? Right? Woe is right. I was thinking the same thing. Whoa. 2,000 years. We're going to be flying underwater and driving boats in the air. Peter talks about holy conduct. What manner of conduct should we have? He's talking about godliness. What manner of person should we be in our godly uh, character qualities? And how that reflects in our culture. What manner of persons ought we to be in the idea of anticipating God's return and being active up until the point? There's a line in a movie that I really like, although probably the context of the line is not really that great. And to be honest with you, I can't remember if it's Oceans 10, 11, 12, 13, or 22. I can't remember. But there's one scene where that group of uh, bandits, they're all bank robbers, are deciding, are they going to go out on another venture or are they not going to? And, uh, and I can't remember the actor's name, but he's an older guy. I think he's Jewish by heritage. But he always wears these great big square glasses. The big, big, like they need should have wipers on them. And they're asking him, you know, if you're... Are you in or are you out? And he basically has this line. He says, boys, he says, I want the last check I write to bounce. And uh, it's, a, it's a great line from this perspective that uh, he's not sitting back just counting his money. He's not sitting back being, you know, complacent and apathetic, you know, gathering it all in and doing anything with it. And although I wouldn't probably promote that movie across the board or any of those movies... I think the concept is right in as much as our, our call to be involved with people and our call to be engaged in the church, our call to be in ministry, <coughs> excuse me, our call and command by God to use our spiritual gifts in our families, in our marriage, in the community of faith, in our culture, that call is true. Would you rather be hoarding all of that? Would you rather be keeping it all to yourself and just, oh, Lord, thank you for blessing me and, and giving me all of this? Or does he give it to us to spend, in, if I can use that term? Does he give it to us to use to benefit other people? Right? So if we all go out, as it were, bankrupt <laughs> from serving God, if I can use those terms and put it in that way, I don't think we'll be bankrupt. That's what I'm saying. Spend it. Spend it. Don't hoard it. Anticipating God's return, where was I? Number four, uh, that we should long and dwell, long for, we should long to dwell in righteousness. 
long to dwell in righteousness. So we should be eager, we should be eager to have that time with Christ. We should be eager to, to live in such a way that we're promoting His goodness and His graciousness. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to, <clears throat> to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot or blameless, without spot and blameless. Verse 15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of the things in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. You, ther you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest <clears throat> you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. In Peter's final thoughts, Peter concludes with a blend of encouragement and caution. A blend of encouragement and caution. Be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot. Be blameless. Consider that the Lord's patience is a gateway or a pathway for salvation. In other words, the fact that God is being patient, let's just use the year that we live in, 2021. So he's been patient for 2,021 years. That means salvation. None of us were alive before then, right? I don't think so. Maybe David. We don't know. I like picking on David. Mostly because he doesn't remember my jokes. That ain't right. In other words, 2,021 years have gone by. That means salvation for you and I. Let's not forget that. That means that, means that there was salvation for, for, for people. All of, those, all of those days and months and years and decades and centuries. Do we realize how much God loves us through looking at that that way? You can do the math if you want to add up all the hours and seconds. That's up to you. The reality is, is the fact that God has been patient means that He loves you. The fact that God has been patient all of this, all of this time means that He loves somebody, and He loved the somebody that shared Jesus with you. Do we get that? The fact that God is, has, has been steadfast and, and patient in this thing means that not only is it just about you as a person, it means that God has been patient to build the church that He wants to build. And He allows the church, really, frankly, to make some mistakes. He allows the church to, to give and take a little. Not that He's in error. But it was also Peter that said in his first epistle that judgment should start in the house of the Lord, meaning that God always works with the remnant. He always works with those that are repentant. He always works with those that come back to a, a central focus on the gospel, a central focus on their calling and mission that He has for every man, woman, and child that are in Christ. And so His patience, in a lot of ways, is a really, really 
really good thing. And God's doing some amazing things, some real amazing things even still today. We've talked about those over the last quite a few sermons. He's doing things in parts of the world that just, just blow our socks off. He's doing things locally. He's raising up men and women to serve him. It's a tremendous thing. But he's given us all opportunity. In his love, he's giving us opportunity to follow him and to do it the right way. So we should consider the Lord's patience as a, gang, as a pathway to salvation. We should consider Paul's words, even though they were tough to understand. Probably the biggest um, understatement in any of these two epistles, maybe all of the New Testament, is this idea, talking about Paul, Peter talking about Paul. Paul, who confronted Peter, Years prior, in a moment of weakness, where Peter was kind of sliding into that uh, old patterns of behavior, and and uh, uh, Peter became a little bit fearful in a period of time, and so he chose, ah, just going to back off, get back into Judaism a little bit, not all the way, but just in, when it comes to eating kosher or non-kosher food. And it was the brand new apostle, the apostle Paul, who tuned him up over the matter. But it's an amazing uh, statement here he says about the Apostle Paul. He says there in 15, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, and here's the understatement, speaking in them the things in which some things are hard to understand. That was an understatement. We don't read it as an understatement. But to put the whole thing in context, it was an understatement. Paul said some pretty difficult things. Paul took off. God led him off on a pathway that it, it, was, it was almost bizarre to everybody else that was watching what was going on. And they knew, they had knowledge that God wanted to save the, all the Gentiles, to reach the Gentiles. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was spoken plainly about. Peter got the vision. Remember the vision in Acts? She came down God said, go and kill and eat. It was a picture of that God was removing these barriers and these withholdings that he had built into a whole culture for Israel. So Peter was well aware. Paul, man, he just shot right through the whole thing. He said, all right, let's just go. And I want to go as far as I can possibly go in the Roman world. Like Paul, if he, if he wouldn't have, Basically, if he wouldn't have ended up in Rome, the possibilities are endless how far he would have gone. And we were talking about this uh, last Sunday night. Whether he made it to Spain or didn't make it to Spain, the reality is, is that Paul said some tough things, things that are hard to understand. And he said, in those difficult things, in those things that this apostle is speaking and sharing and writing about, Hey, there's going to be people that take those things. He's back on this idea of scoffers, false teachers, false prophets. There's going to be things that these guys are going to take, and they're going to twist and contort and change around and make it sound completely different. Avoid those guys. Stay away from those guys. 
not only do it with his words, but they'll do it with the rest of Scripture. Rather, he said, rather, he said, grow in graciousness. Grow in graciousness. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think if there's anything that our culture could really do well with, could really benefit from, is Christ's followers being gracious. Is Christ's followers being gracious. Seeing how gracious, it's, I'm not saying weak, I'm not saying we're called to be weak in the sense that we have no voice, that we have, you know, that we shouldn't take a stand on anything, that we should let, you know, just all of this thing, you know, whatever this pressure is in our culture against our faith, that we should just let it bulldoze us. I'm not saying that. But in your everyday experience, in your everyday, you know, comings and goings, are people seeing you grow in graciousness? Are people seeing you being more like Christ in that sense? When it's all said and done, really that's what matters. Whatever the problem, or whatever, <clears throat> wherever a person is spiritually, whatever myth we may have believed or attempted to believe, the solution is really the same, Peter says. The solution really is found in our relationship with Christ. So wherever we are on the, the, the you know, growth spectrum, wherever we are in our walk of faith and this journey of, of spirituality, maybe you're here and you're not a believer. Maybe you're just hearing this for the very first time and it's like, whoa, what are we talking about? But maybe you've sat in church your whole life, and this is a great reminder. Peter was big on reminders. We need to be continually reminding one another. Wherever you're at, the solution is really simple. We all need, I need, and you need, simply, more of Jesus. More of Jesus. Maybe you don't have any relationship with Him, so it's a first step for you. Or like I mentioned, maybe you've been in church your whole life and you've been a believer for 50, 60 years. The solution is still the same. Your need is still the same. More of Christ. More of Christ, less of me. More of Jesus, less of my flesh. More of Jesus, less of the culture. Right? That's the influence that Peter's saying, that Paul's saying, that all of the apostles and all of the scriptures all confer on that's true is that we need more of Christ. All of the Old Testament pointed towards the coming of the Messiah. The Gospels say, hey, he's here, here he is, this is all about Jesus. And all of the epistles are saying, here's how we live in a relationship with, with Christ who has come, who was lived, who showed us how to live, how to love, who then died for us, paid our penalty, paid for the sin that none of us can, can pay for, paid my sin debt, paid your sin debt, was buried, the rock was removed, and the author of this book, you know, run into the tomb, remembering all of that. Young John, probably a better cross-country runner, didn't stop right in the tomb, <laughs> empty so he lived he died he was buried and he resurrected why am I holding up one finger 
and he was resurrected the third day. The third day. I don't know. Good teachers don't do that, do they? Hold up one finger. That looks weird. <laughs> All four, he says. The reality is, though, the reality is, and we'll close and the worship team wants to come on up. We'll get out of here. The reality is, is that Christ died for you. He lived for you. He died for you. And he rose again for you. And it's not all about you. It's all about his glory. It's all about him being raised up, him being worshipped, him being the king of our lives. And he wants a relationship. So that's our message. That was Peter's message. That was the apostles' message. That's our message again today. We're going to go into... We'll let the worship team close us if you all stand. But we're going to go into a little series, just a little topical series leading up to Easter, looking at the events. We're going to get four snapshots of who Jesus is in his, during his life leading up to Resurrection Sunday in five weeks from today. So if you'd all sing with the worship team, Jonathan will go ahead and close in prayer, and we can have a great Sunday afternoon.